Hello, and welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And today, we've got a special listener-sponsored episode. Woohoo! Yeah! Many thanks to Sadie for her support of the podcast and her support of this exciting topic. And just a reminder, you can be like Sadie and get an episode of your very own over at thedirtpod.com. Yeah, you can support The Dirt and hear us talk about your favorite stuff. Win-win. Today, we are talking about evolutionary anachronisms. Oh, yeah. Nope. Same. <laughs> Big mood. You feel like... Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, me too. But this is actually a specific term in evolutionary biology, and it refers to attributes of living species that are best explained as a result of having been favorably selected in the past due to coevolution with other species that have since become extinct. So basically, okay. once that other species goes away, you get its lonely companion just hanging out with traits that appear to be unexplained because they take a large amount of energy to produce with no apparent benefit. And these traits may even work against the continued reproduction of the species. Oh my God, so you are describing my social life right now. <laughs> <laughs> Your social life co-evolved with an extinct species. Yeah. Oh, oh, well... <laughs> <laughs> well... What I actually mean is big <laughs> and those, fruits. And those traits are working against the continued reproduction of my species. <laughs> oh, buddy. <laughs> okay, well, but today, what are you actually talking about? We're talking about big fruits, megafauna fruits. So these but, are plants that, yes. Megafauna? Yeah. But fauna, fauna ain't no fruit. I'm explain. Okay. These are plants okay. that produce fruits. <laughs> That evolved alongside some of the giant animals that once walked the earth and used those animals as mechanisms to spread their seeds around. But now that the megafauna are gone, we're left with some weird plants. We're setting the scene sometime before 13,000 years ago. And so that's when the age of the megafauna came lumbering to an end. And before that, species like mammoths and mastodons and gomphotheres tromped around North America. What? And, uh, no, wait. Yeah. I feel like I, f I feel like I had like a head injury. Gompho what? <laughs> like none of this. What are you talking about? <laughs> you know, gompotheers. Um or possibly gompotheories. I'm not sure about the pronunciation, but um they were these elephant-like proboscideans, which are those animals Nosy. with trunky noses. Yeah, nosy animals. Yeah. Um, but they didn't belong to the family elephant today. They're not elephants. Um, they were widespread in North America during the Miocene and Pliocene epochs, so around 12 to 1.6 million years ago. Long time. Gosh. Some of them lived in parts of Eurasia, Beringia, so that area up by the Bering Straits, and even into South America. But beginning about 5 million years ago, they were gradually replaced by modern elephants. And the name gomphothere comes from ancient Greek gomphos, meaning peg or pin or wedge, plus therion, beast. So they're, they're wedge noses. They got little wedgy noses. They got wedgy nose. Oh, that's cute. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you. That's helpful. You're very, you're very welcome. Well, and another one of those, another one of um, these creatures was like the giant ground sloth that our friends over in the ancient footprints episode were hunting. Yeah, they they aren't gomphotheres, but no, I, but yes, another. But yes, but they are. They were a megafauna. Yeah, they were another yeah. type of therion. 
Okay. Man, sp- speaking of speaking of wedgie noses and very not large animals, you ever seen an elephant shrew? Gosh, those things are cute. Anyway, um, <laughs> so have you ever seen an elephant shrew? Yeah. Oh, okay. Great. Great news. Just okay, checking so, in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This has been elephant shrew updates. More We've seen them. Mm-hmm. What that means so, for your commute. <laughs> so we've got these massive herbivores living all over the world sometime before 13,000 years ago, and they need a lot of plant food to keep them fed because they're real big. So meanwhile, you've got plants all over the world and still today whose strategy is to get animals <laughs> to eat their seeds, walk a ways away, and then poop them out. And they do that by covering the seed in some sort of delicious fruit. So... During the time that these megafauna were around, some plants evolved really, really big fruits and correspondingly large seeds to be tempting to a mastodon or whatever else was in the area. Why did so did the did the seeds have to be big or were they just like it's a matter of scale? Well, the seeds were so big because they needed to survive a mastodon's digestive tract and it helped to be okay. like okay. fist-sized and covered in a very hard shell. Okay. All right. Uh plants Love them. You with, you with me so far? <laughs> um, so plants, like all other species on this planet, have to have compromise. They have to make trade-offs in terms of energy used for reproduction versus energy used for other things. So they have to have their priorities. So a number of different strategies have evolved to make sure that enough seeds are dispersed to the appropriate locations and are able to make more plants given the constraints of limiting resources and natural selection. So these guys got to get out there. So one such straight off is between seed size and seed dispersal. So simply put, gravity tends to ensure that big things don't go very far as a general rule. Think of a 30 ton boulder rolling down a hill versus a 30 pound rock. Gravity's going to weigh that big boulder down more quickly while that rock might bounce further down the slope. So one way around this, however, is thought to be the evolution of megafaunal dispersal syndrome, which Sounds terminal. Um, Wherein plants get big animals to move the big seeds around for them. The delicious avocado that we millennials love so much is thought to be an example of one such fruit. You may have noticed that it's got a big old seed inside it. Sure does. Sure does. Don't eat that seed. Mm -mm. Uh, The idea of megafaunal dispersal syndrome was first suggested by Dan Jansen. Why'd you say it like that? Because it's got a Z in it. I don't know. It just seems like... It was snazzy? (laughs) Dan Jansen. Um, He's a tropical ecologist. Oh, the most laid back of all the ecologists. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And he noticed that there were a a number of large elephant ear tree fruits. That's a lot of downs altogether. (laughs) (laughs) The plant is called an elephant ear, and it's a tree. It's got fruits. It's got fruits. Okay. So he noticed that there were a number of large elephant ear tree fruits in the deciduous forests of Costa Rica that just rotted there on the forest floor. If cattle had been introduced to the area, though, the cows went around snarfing up as many of these elephant ear tree fruits um, as they could find. And Jansen called such fruits neotropical anachronisms and hypothesized that large fleshy fruited seeds had co-evolved with megafaunal dispersers that have, in the Americas at least, been extinct for over 12,000 years. In other words, as author Connie Barlow puts it, these incongruous fruits are, quote, ghosts of evolution, end quote, living out of evolutionary context with their co-evolved dispersers. 
Many large fruited trees have other life history traits that are handy around large herbivores. Some, like the honey locust, I know that one, um, have large thorns or other defenses, presumably to make sure the herbivores don't do more harm than good. Come closer, say the trees, beckoning with their tasty seed pods, but not too close. Others, this is also my social strategy. Yeah, others, like the Osage Orange, compensate for overzealous herbivores with clonal or apomictic <laughs> reproductive strategies. Yeah, you nailed it. So an ap- <laughs> Tincture. <laughs> an, an apomictic reproductive strategy, so it's from the Greek apomixis, so no mixing. No mixing. Means means asexual reproduction, so cloning. It gets rid of the need for pollen from one plant to make it to the flowers of the other plant. And so plants that do this, like the Osage orange, are genetically identical to every plant they produce. But the megafauna are gone now. Cue tumbleweed. (laughs) (laughs) How are plants faring in the absence of their extinct dispersers? Well, I can look outside into my woods and tell you that for some of them, doing okay in the case of the avocado and other cultivated fruits there's not much to worry about humans it turns out make pretty good megafaunal dispersers too for breadfruit for example humans have been an effective disperser selecting particular varieties and transporting them across the islands of oceania for many millennia but what about the osage orange the honey locust and the pawpaw all of which are in my woods or the elephant ear tree which jansen observed in costa rica did they once taste as delicious to the ground sloths, horses, and gomphotheres that once roamed the Americas as the avocado does to us? I, I don't know. I don't know. But scientists ha- scientists have speculated that large-fruited plants may be struggling, living in greatly restricted ranges compared to where they could grow if the mastodons and other megafauna were still eating and dispersing their seeds today. Incidentally, the Osage orange's name, which d- don't eat that Osage orange. No, don't. I mean, you... Probably couldn't even bite into it. They're really hard. No, I mean, like, if you do crack one open, don't eat what's inside it. Yeah, but it, it apparently oozes this white latex if you, yeah. if you crack it open. don't eat it. So, like, they grow it, like, growing up, like, when we would play in the woods. Like, if you found one, we were like, don't eat it. So, yes, yes, message received. Thank you. Don't eat it. <laughs> okay. Um, so, the Osage Orange's name comes from the fact that it fell... It, that its range fell within the territory of the Osage people, uh, the, an indigenous group here in North America, who purportedly controlled its trade for the making of bows. The the wood, not the... Yeah, not the decorative knot. No, the wood was used for making bows. <laughs> oh, I see. I was clarifying <laughs> that the tree wasn't, in fact, used to decorate packages. No, you're thinking of raffia. Mm, that's true. <laughs> uh, so following the European colonization of North America, the tree's range expanded rapidly to new regions suggested it had been previously dispersal limited. Right. So as soon as people needed it for something, as soon as a lot of people needed it for something, it expanded. So yeah. I guess we sort of took the place of mastodons. Um, so the Osage Orange and the Papa are native to you, right? Yes. So like <laughs> to me, I, yes. <laughs> to, to you specifically. No, to your neck of the woods. Like yeah. I... I Googled Osage orange as soon as Sadie sent in this topic because I was like, oh, what's that? Is it a kind of orange? Do I have that here? No, it's definitely not. And then about a week after Sadie selected the topic, I was on a walk and I literally tripped over one. So they're not native to California, but I was walking in like a a preserve area. And I think it's been 
over over the years it's been sort of an arboretum kind of situation where they they brought in some non-native plants for whatever reason. So it was this weird coincidence. And that's when I immediately texted you that photo. Like, look what I found. Because it was clearly a sign for something. I don't know what. Yeah, and I and I texted you back, don't eat that orange. <laughs> I did not eat that orange. Um, I, I just, but, I, th- I threw it. Yeah, and so I, I've known about, like, Osage oranges and pawpaws and honey locusts. Um, like my whole life um because i was a young naturalist um and i and i lived in the woods um that was probably more the latter than the former <laughs> but i didn't know that they were megafauna fruit and i never thought much about megafaunal dispersal syndrome um, this is if you look in um we'll link to this but if you look in the book uh, I have an excerpt from that book by Connie Barlow, and it's ghosts of evolution. Yeah, ghosts of evolution, and it's an Osage orange, like on the teeth of a mastodon, and it's just like a little gumdrop snack for that guy. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, and it just as gross. Just being like, that's the sound of a mastodon eating an Osage orange. Yeah, so don't eat them. Other megafauna fruit like the avocado are delicious to us human people. Mm-hmm. Um, arguably more delicious than a avocado is a pawpaw. I want to try one so bad. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So they're called people, people not from here call them custard apples. Yeah. I well, mean, people, people I like from here call them things. custard apples too, because it's, um, there's a, there's another form of pawpaw that is in tropical regions and it has a flavor profile much more in keeping with tropical fruits. Um, yeah. Cause I, I heard it described once as like a custardy mango banana. Yeah. Is that the tropical yeah, one? Yeah. Or is that your so, one? Both. I mean, they're like, it's, it's, they're both pawpaws, oh. but there's one that lives in like tropical Climate. Okay. And so it is, um, and I think it's, uh, it's like incorporated into their cuisine. And so people have like sort of the, the general public is more mm-hmm. likely to encounter them through that because of sort of the like white colonial attitudes towards exotic and scare sure. cuisine, um, than the pawpaw here. Um, and so, there we'll include this article from NPR that <laughs> the one with the worst pun ever. And I, as a connoisseur of puns, even was upset at this one. Yeah. So this is this is the sort of thing that like I I'm not an NPR listener. I, I don't encounter NPR a, a whole lot. Uh, but when I do, sometimes I'm just like, oh, and, <laughs> and this is one of those times. <laughs> Okay. Um, and with the and you may get a sense for, on multiple fronts why from the from the title, this once obscure fruit is on its way to becoming papa popular. Um, which uh. yeah. So there's like the initial. So this is this one's got this is like a the perfume. initial affront. Yeah, this is like a, a perfume of offense. So you've got these top notes of that terrible pun, which like after a few minutes fade and give way to the bass notes of like how like the once obscure part that's how what's... how like classist and like regionally like like regionalist yeah and 
So yeah, it's not so, obscure. You just it's, haven't experienced it. It's not obscure. Um, and so I will. And so okay. So this this NPR article goes on further to say. So while the fruit already had a long list of nicknames, Quaker Delight, the Hillbilly Mango, now it's earned another one, the Hipster Banana. So cool. So let's talk about pawpaws themselves, and then I will give you a sense of why pawpaws are so obscure. Um, <laughs> give me them so, hot pawpaw takes. Yeah. So pawpaws grow from the, the Great Lakes down to portions of the Florida Panhandle. Um, Not obscure. <laughs> so the members of the Lewis and Clark expedition ate pawpaws for pleasure, which like, thank God they had something to do for pleasure since they were like, Pooping all the time. Yes. Um, and for a period in Missouri in 1806, they were used for subsistence. One could also say they've been used for subsistence at many other points every year <laughs> in other time. parts of the country. John John James Audubon of the Society fame depicted... <laughs> what a dumb <laughs> sentence. John James Audubon depicted yellow-billed cuckoos on a pawpaw branch. Cool which, story. Like, I know. <laughs> which, like, what a, like, B-side from an Andrew Bird album. <laughs> Our early American ancestors and contemporaries um, enjoyed pawpaws for centuries through today, uh, spreading them as far west as Kansas. In 1541, the expedition of conquistador Hernando de Soto recorded Native Americans growing and eating pawpaws in the Mississippi Valley. And although they had to clear pawpaw trees to create farmable land, white settlers savored pawpaw fruit, often the only fresh fruit available nearby. This is important. Um, There are towns named pawpaw in Michigan, West Virginia, been there, Kentucky, and Oklahoma, um, which has something to do with the fact, like, could be tied to the fact that the mid-Atlantic and the Midwest states make up the pawpaw hot zone. Um, pop, we are also, hot zone. <laughs> we are also known as the Upland South. Uh, we are also known as Appalachia. So I would like <laughs> I would like there to be a band named Pawpaw Hot Zone. Well, you've you've not heard of them. <sighs> They're obscure. Um, yeah. So, but the more industrialized our country became, in parts of it, the less relevant pawpaws were. In parts to those it. parts, uh, yep. pawpaws have had some public awareness issues. Um, an abundance of folksy nicknames for one. Hoosier banana, Indian banana, custard apple, Quaker delight. The pawpaw means, that pawpaw means papaya in other parts of the world doesn't help any either. Despite Baloo's bare necessities shout out in the Disney version of the Jungle Book, pawpaws are unrelated to papayas, which is possibly the like smallest of potatoes in terms of problematic aspects of that film. Um, but currently, there's a groundswell, a pawpaw renaissance. The small but enthusiastic pawpaw community encompasses both professional and amateur growers and people that go out in the woods. And it culminates at gatherings like the Ohio Pawpaw Festival, a laid-back event now in its 16th year where family hula-hooping workshops and presentations on pawpaw propagation balance out a robust beer garden music stage. Gosh, this tone um, is patronizing. <laughs> Mine or the article? No, 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 none of the articles. The articles. Um, Festival goers queue up for free samples of pawpaw ice cream, a sweet and tasty introduction to the enticing possibilities of pawpaw cuisine. So the thing about pawpaws is they are, because they are so high in 
Like they're so high in sugar. Presumably and, vitamins. Um, no, yeah, but they rot really fast. Oh, oh, I see. So okay. spoilage is an issue, mm-hmm. and they aren't. Um, and th- so you don't have like pawpaw groves or pawpaw orchards. Um, oh, you just get like a sticky mess immediately. Yeah. I so guess. you're not. You don't have this like large scale like agricultural mechanism behind it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why that's part of the reason why they aren't so popular. Um, but you mean so, pawpaw popular? So just like how every few years. New York Times cooking section and NPR uh, will do stuff about how like ramps they're so hot right now uh, where they like discover ramps. So um, that's the same thing with pawpaw. Like there are like a lot of analogies there because it is something that's highly seasonal um, and And highly regional. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So. Right. And so pawpaws and ramps grow in the same places they're only in season for a very they're only ripe for a very short period of time during the year um and they have a really they have a rather like crucial role in subsistence strategies and then like that's but that's how lots of um like traditional cuisines come about is there's some like they fill some nutritional niche um, and then people like it's an acquired taste over time and then you start to, to love it. Like that's yeah. like, that's, that's a lot of, there's like, there are a lot of studies on like food ways and so, especially among like impoverished community, historically impoverished communities and like yeah. things that are very nutrient dense, um, but look down on. But like for like classist reasons. So like pawpaws and, and, and ramps. So if you do see them out of their like native environment where you just go into the woods and pick them, like that's like uh, they're really expensive. So pawpaws run like $15 a pound. Jeez. Um, I've seen ramps. Like I saw um Somebody, I think in Michigan, shared a photo that ramps were for sale in their in a grocery, like a high end grocery store, um, for like twelve or fifteen dollars a pound, and it's something that's like a real slap Jeepers. in the face to people who are like, "Well, no, I go out into the woods because that's like part of the issue." <laughs> it's like right, right, because you don't got fifteen dollars to drop on exotic fruit. So the big the big thing with both of them is that they have a really really short freshness. And yeah, I guess. Yeah. Or yeah, is it shelf. like short growing season and short, they, like, they Sh- don't stick short, around. Short growing season. And once you pick them, you're running down the clock. Right. So you, it's not, foods. Yeah, so it's not like picking an apple and then a week later that apple is just as good as it was before. It's closer to how like, you know, how you get a pear and then you like, <laughs> and then no. you no, it goes no, from <laughs> dead. Yeah, it's like, oh, look at this like beautiful rock, and then you wake up in the morning, and it's like, what is this like? What is this puddle? It's sort of like that, and so you sort of have their limitations. It always makes me so sad. I really like pears. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and so, um, but pawpaws are amazing, and they're delicious, and um, you can make. Um, like jammy kind of stuff out of them. So there are a few recipes that use them as preserved, but it is, but it's just something that is really, really good. Just, just eating, eating fresh. Yeah. And so mm. the, I take considerable issue with saying things like this are obscure because they're not 
they're not at all obscure. Like it I very much reflects the perspective of whoever's writing that article. Yeah, yeah, and so it's not obscure. That's sort of my <laughs> okay my point. And so I went to um, I I uh, put out a call among folks that I know and some Facebook groups um, among some Appalachians uh, looking for a pawpaw expert to see if somebody wanted to talk to us about pawpaws. Um, mm-hmm. And I've not yielded any pawpaw specific yeah 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 it's been a fruitless endeavor but this is very this is very much like the domain of people's grandmas and so there aren't as many grandmas on facebook here but that doesn't mean that we won't come up with somebody i know i know so hang on everybody and also um i will do my best to bring pawpaw to your consciousness dear listener um when it comes back in season. So in a couple months, I will bring I gotta some get pawpaws. me over to West Virginia. Yes. There's some papa in my face. Yep. And pet my dog and you can come hear the Tuvan throat singers when they're in Pocahontas oh County. What a on day. Their, on their world tour. I'm so excited. Yeah. So that's pawpaws. <laughs> okay. Shut up, NPR. Okay. So there's the pawpaw, the avocado, the breadfruit. It seems like of all of the megafauna fruits, the ones that are doing well are the ones that humans really like to eat and, and cultivate. Are humans the new megafauna? Tired megafauna. Wired humans. Uh, sort of. Um, I mean, we're not a mammoth in size, but we have a pretty big impact on plant dispersal. Um, you may have noticed that we have a pretty big impact on most things on this planet. Um <laughs> But specifically around plant dispersal, there was a 2017 p- paper in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Sciences? <laughs> um, a, a paper in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, PNAS, mm-hmm. um, tried to actually quantify the human role in fruit species in Central and South America that were once distributed by megafauna. <clears throat> This gets dense, so. Oh, great. Yeah, it's um, no, not super <laughs> jargony, just like uh, dense. <laughs> great. Okay, quote, human effects on the geographic and environmental distribution of fruit species can be assessed by comparing these species versus species with alternate non-human past fruit dispersers, i.e. extinct megafauna. Most neotropical megafauna became extinct approximately 12,000 years before present, and human impact strengthened after this time. Thus, humans and megafauna have had different effects on population structure of fruit species over time. We hypothesize that fruit species that were previously dispersed by megafauna but are now not dispersed by humans have smaller geographic and environmental ranges. In contrast, we hypothesize that fruit species previously dispersed by megafauna that are now dispersed by humans have wider geographic and environmental ranges because of human management of these fruit species during the past 15,000 years. So that was pretty accessible. Let's change that. <laughs> yep. Let's head to their conclusions. <laughs> um, out quote. Our yes, results suggest. <laughs> our results suggest that humans have been, on average, responsible for forty-one percent of the extent of occurrence for wild-producing fruit species and seventy percent for cultivated fruit species in the neotropics compared with fruit species that were exclusively part of megafauna diets. In a similar way, human dispersed fruit species have 51% and 71% larger EOO 
which is not extra virgin olive oil. It's it's no, extent it's of occurrence. Extent of so. Okay. Yep. Pointless extent of extent of occurrence for over for oh geez okay. In a similar way, human dispersed fruit species have 51% and 71% larger extent of occurrence for land cover only, respectively, and 23% and 51% larger. I don't know what, I guess, megafauna dispersal. Nope. I don't know what MGD is. I'm going to guess maximum GDs. (laughs) (laughs) Then fruit species that were exclusively part of megafauna diets. Thus, humans have expanded or maintained the geographic ranges of species that would otherwise have suffered range contraction after extinction or megafauna. Extinction of megafauna. All right. Well, you're welcome, plants. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, they could have said that better. But the point is that they, they surveyed all of these different species of formerly megafauna propagated fruit and and they came to the conclusion that humans have affected those significantly based yeah. on whichever and, ones we think are useful or tasty. Yeah, and so this this 2017 um, study published in Panas really calls out those ungrateful plants. <laughs> um, but it is interesting that human use of these plants, whether it's the Osage orange for bow wood or the other plants for their tasty, 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 yet obscure fruit that have become the new, new determiner of evolutionary success for this particular category of plant. You're not going to let that go, are you? No. <laughs> and that's fine. That is your this prerogative. Is, and this is my raison d'etre. Is that a fruit? The raisin d'etre? <laughs> no. In terms of evolutionary anachronisms, there's more than just plant evolution to talk about. There is human behavior as well. So we're not as far from the purview of anthropology as you thought, listeners. Bringing it back to people. So there's something called relict behavior. Not okay. relic. Relict. Yeah. So this sounds like my grandma's saying it. As in as in derelict. Like it's from the same relict. It's just the, the second half of derelict. Um, which is Behavioral tendencies that are thought to be left over in animal brains from previous generations that might have needed it, but the need has gone away environmentally while the behavior sticks around. Like yawning? So maybe, yeah. We don't know like, why we yawn. Like grabby little babies? Well, we know why that one. Yeah. But but yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Maybe. Like my dog yeah. oh, like my dog taking kibble away from her bowl and then eating it? Or taking little nests. Little nests. I don't, I don't know why your dog does that. Make a little nest on the couch. Can I talk about relic behavior, please? Oh, God, sure. (laughs) So in 2004, drawing on experiments with blue jays. What? um, Well, okay, so they they (laughs) did experiments with blue jays and then are able to extrapolate from that to human behavior. Let me do it. (laughs) So this is from a team from the University of Minnesota, Minnesota, uh, and they found what may be the evolutionary basis for impulsive behavior in humans. So this behavior may have evolved because in the wild, snatching up small rewards like food morsels rather than waiting for something bigger and better to come along can lead to getting more rewards food-wise in the long run. And this may help explain why many modern-day humans find it so hard to turn down an immediate reward, for example, food or money or sex or euphoria, rather than investing and waiting for a bigger reward later. And so this work uh, has been published in the Proceedings of the Royal Society. Of of London, that Royal Society, the Royal Society of London, yeah. <laughs> uh, so the Royal Society parentheses London, like 
just in case. So David Stevens, a professor of ecology, evolution, and behavior in the university's College of Biological Sciences, experimented with blue jays and found that birds presented with a choice of getting a small food reward immediately or waiting a short time for a bigger one could not be trained to wait even after a thousand repetitions. Many researchers have explained such impulsiveness as the result of the bird discounting the value of a delayed reward, that is, instinctively realizing that a reward delayed may be a reward denied because conditions can change while the bird's waiting. But the bird's impulsiveness was simply too strong to explain that way, said Stevens. Okay. So the birds aren't just dumb? Okay. All right. No, but, like, but the, like- the, the, behavior, the behavior is strong enough that it can't just be assessing the value of plan A versus plan B. Okay. Like there has to be something more okay. going on co- like right. in so, terms of cognition. So this sounds like um, those marshmallow experiments that were done with, with little kids in the 70s. Because so, you could do that back then. Mm-hmm. And come up with the, yeah, so, <laughs> so oof. psychology's come a long way. Um, yep. <laughs> As a science. Uh, the Stanford Marshmallow Experiment, which not same saying the Stanford Prison Experiment. Also bad. But also. <laughs> this um, marshmallow experiment, Stan- way less bad. Stanford, call your psychologist. Um, this was a series of studies on delayed gratification in the late 60s and early 70s led by psychologist Walter Mischel who was a professor at Stanford. Um, they didn't just let some rando in. He was a <laughs> professor at Stanford. Come on in, Walter. Uh, <laughs> in he these says studies, he's a doctor. <laughs> oh, no. Um, in these studies, a child was offered a choice between one small reward provided immediately or two small rewards if they waited for a short period, approximately 15 minutes, during which the tester left the room and then returned. The to reward be fair, was- 15 minutes to a little kid is like four hours in little kid time. Yeah, but still. The reward was sometimes a marshmallow, but it was often a cookie or pretzel because, ew, marshmallows. Um, In follow-up studies, the researchers found that children who were able to wait longer for the preferred rewards tended to have better life outcomes, as measured by SAT scores, educational attainment, body mass index, and other measures. So, you may, like, a lot of red flags may have gone up there. You may have gotten, like, a whole, like, routine. A whole whole, whole forest of red flags. (laughs) Yeah. Like a whole color guard routine of red flags there. Um, and so, yeah. So later. And indeed. This, yeah, good. Good, good job. Good instincts you got there. Because when this, um, when this experiment was attempted, when it was attempted again to see if you could replicate the results as one does in science. Um with if you have a more diverse sample population and a larger sample population, the ori- uh, the original study's findings fell apart. Um, it, it didn't support the original study's conclusions and suggested that economic background rather than willpower explained the results. And so um, it's great that somebody like, repeated that. Yeah, yeah, because it's the sort of thing that it laid the groundwork for thinking that, oh, like patient children are like good children and will be successful children and skinny children. Um, and so like what actually you're looking at is if a, if your subject has been conditioned to every um, experience of the subject's life leads them to believe that there may not be a reward at the end of that waiting period. You better take what you can get when you can get it. 
Um, And so like poverty is a huge factor in this. Um, Right. And I'm sure there are lots of other things at play too. Oh yeah. It's just not, there's not one thing that can explain a behavior. Yeah. Yeah. So, but it sounds like that with these birds. Yeah. Maybe these were like disenfranchised blue jays. Well, it was a pretty big sample size, um, and I'm not sure what socioeconomic class these birds were from, but um, Stephen's team designed experiments modeled on how animals encounter and exploit what they called food clumps. Did I send you the photo of that squirrel exploiting food clumps on my back porch? No, but we, I love we, a good food clump. We, we had to, like, sew it and seeds out for the birds, um, mm-hmm. and some squirrel, like, made eye contact with me when I came into the kitchen and just like slowly stuffed food in its mouth and then climbed back up the pole to the bird feeder. And I'm just, <laughs> they don't respect me. But well, probably neither do blue jays. Um, <laughs> so, so the jays encountered one clump at a time and attained some food from it. Then they had to decide whether to wait for a bit more from the same clump or leave and search for another clump. Not surprisingly, the birds still acted impulsively preferring items they could get quickly. They only considered the size and wait time for their next reward, never a reward beyond that, even though that reward might have been bigger. But here's the surprising payoff. The birds that went for the immediate reward ended up getting as much or more food in the long run as birds that were forced to wait for the larger reward or to follow a mixed strategy. So in the wild, animals aren't faced with an either-or choice of small reward now or big reward later. What happens is that when they find a little bit of food, they don't wait. They just, they get it and they go back to foraging and they may find lots of little rewards that add up to more than what they would get if they had to wait for something bigger and better. So here's a quote from Stevens. Animals, I think, come with a hardwired rule that says, don't look too far in the future. Being impulsive. (laughs) Being impulsive works really well because after grabbing the food, they can forget it and go back to their original foraging behavior. That behavior can achieve high long-term gains, even if it's impulsive. And so... This might apply to humans, he says, because taking rewards without hesitation may have paid off for our foraging ancestors as it does for those blue jays and for other foragers. And some of us may still have that response hardwired into our brains, but we're not hunter-gatherers anymore, and sometimes this response can do more harm than good. Quote, Impulsiveness is considered a big behavior problem for humans. Some humans do better at binary decisions like a little now or a lot later than others. When psychologists study kids who are good at waiting for a reward, they find those kids generally do better in life. Well, maybe. Well, Stevens does birds. Yes. Like not human brains. So he hasn't listened to this episode yet. Yeah. So, and, and this may be because we evolved as foragers who encountered no penalties for taking resources impulsively. And so, um, Stevens mentioned that the National Institute on Drug Abuse funds a lot of studies of impulsiveness, which seems to play a big part in addiction. And so these studies that help to understand the mechanisms behind impulsivity uh, may sort of benefit our understanding of of how that works in humans and sort of how to deal with it. Yeah, I think that it would be great um, because as those subsequent studies showed that it was less a matter of impulsivity as some kind of flaw in in children as it was something that was informed by other factors it's environmental yeah so i think that like if there are studies that look towards how can maybe um 
how to help kind of rewire someone's brain. So if they like if if their environment changes and their environment is like more is safer and more stable by however you want to define that, um, then maybe like we like can, how to help with adjustment into that yeah into that new so that you can surroundings yeah because it is because impulsivity is what kept people alive and so do you want to like turn that off like in favor of like not eating too many carbs well like, maybe not but, turn it off but maybe but, like, make yes. people aware of it and and give them coping mechanisms yeah so i think that there it's definitely like useful for pursuing as a as a means of study especially if like results of additional research are showing that it's a much more nuanced situation than than just like oh the patient kid is the good kid because they'll be successful they're like no Mm. like the Mm. the the patient kid is probably the the financially stable kid who (laughs) who knows that they're gonna get what was promised who who is like the child of stanford grad students and is gonna do just fine anyway because like they it like the so yeah yep boy we really we really kind of ran the gamut in this episode we went all over yeah who knew thank you again to sadie for both for your support and for this super interesting topic and i i really hope we did it justice and if we didn't let us know sadie no refunds yeah no refunds thanks for listening we'll be back with you soon within a matter of days and you can find us on soundcloud apple podcasts or the platform of your choosing please and thank you for dropping five star rating yeah reviews we love we love little ego we love like that we do and we love to hear what you have to say about the show and and we like to know that you're listening um, and you can follow us on Facebook, where we are The Dirt Podcast. On Twitter, we're at Dirt Podcast. And on Instagram, we're at The Dirt Pod. All, all of that funnels onto our lovely website, thedirtpod.com. Um, and if you've got Paw Paw recipes or have heard of them or you make a great guacamole, you can tell us about it at thedirtpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. We, we, we love, love you. you. Bye. Bye.